Here's what I usually do on Easter. I like to preach about what Episcopalians have on offer. Today, of course, we celebrate the possibility of new life and transformation. That's what resurrection is all about. And uh, many of us have experienced that in our own lives. We understand the truth of it. My former Bishop William Swing in the Diocese of California used to say, I believe in the resurrection because I have seen the resurrection in other people. So the resurrection, in a sense, is in the bloodstream of the church. But Episcopalians approach this from a particular point of view. It's not the only point of view, but it's our point of view. So I thought I'd say some things to you about uh, what undergirds that for us, to say some things about the challenges and the opportunities that we face uh, in the present era, and then to maybe say some things about uh, what we can do moving forward, understanding ourselves as the people of God. Episcopalians believe that the Bible is, uh, uh, the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. So let me just say some things to you about what our sources of authority are. There are three things, the Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. This is the way we come to the deep things of Christian faith and belief. And as a matter of fact, people do that in other aspects of their life, I think, without knowing it. Because we carry around within each of us some grand narrative that uh, either supports or doesn't uh, the way we understand our life and what we should do. And we have a tr those traditions that are part of who we are and what we do. And then we, one hopes, use our reason and experience uh, to live healthier lives. But I'm sure everybody has gotten into a situation where they begin to realize this is where my best thinking has led me. And what do you do about that? So it's a question. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. We believe that the Bible is true, and some of it happened. <laughs> so that's an, that's an important thing. I'll betray at the beginning my own views about this. I'm, I suppose some would say I'm fairly conservative about this. But I believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead and was recognized by the apostles and the disciples uh, as a risen person a transformed resurrection body. And it is the promise that we have in the biblical witness that each of us will experience that in some time. You've heard me say recently uh, more than once that there was a time in, uh, let's say we go to the English uh, Anglican churchyards, the places where people are buried. And through the 16th and 17th century, you'll read on the gravestone, David Brewer, gone, but will return. 
And then we get to a place toward the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th, and it will say, David Brewer, gone home. Right? So a lot of Christianity has become getting ourselves fixing to get ready to go somewhere else. And the promise in the Bible is is that we're all going to be together again. We're all going to come back at the great resurrection. And Easter is the time when we affirm that possibility for each one of us and say yes to it, that it is important. You know, people's sense of history is often not as great, good as it should be. And we're living in, a, in an age now of intense and pervasive skepticism about the truth, not only the truth of Christianity, but belief in God and all of the things that uh, are part of how people have understood their lives. In 1813, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, six people received Holy Communion on Easter. And in Paris, at Notre Dame Cathedral, nine people received Holy Communion on Easter. So that, of course, was the tail end of the uh, high days of the Enlightenment project. But that is still with us in some form or another. So I thought I'd read to you from a book. I've, I've done this before. About 15 years ago, there was a, a book written by a man named Neil Stevenson called Cryptonomicon. And it's a great read. It's a very interesting story. But there's a section in the book that I believe captures uh, the situation on the ground in 2015. So a little back part of the backstory. Randy, one of the principal characters who's involved in creating some server, secure server in some remote part of the world, and then we get all mixed up with, did the Japanese hide gold in the Philippine Islands? And it's a long story about all of that. But he had a girlfriend or a relationship in Seattle with someone named Charlene. And in the course of his travels in Asia, he met Amy Shafto. And soon they were uh, an item. And he came back to Seattle to see some of his friends with Amy. But Charlene had really told all of his friends what a big jerk Randy was. So they go to a party or a gathering to see their old friends. And this is what Neil Stevenson says about this. The friendliest and most sincere welcome he'd gotten was from Scott, a chemistry professor, and Laura, a pediatrician who, after knowing Randy and Charlene for many years, had one day divulged to Randy in strict confidence that unbeknownst to the academic community at large, they had been spiriting their three children off to church every Sunday morning and even had them all baptized. Randy had gone into their house once to help Scott wrestle a freshly reconditioned clawfoot bathtub up the stairs 
and had actually seen the word God written on actual pieces of paper stuck to the walls of their house like on the refrigerator door and the walls of the children's bedrooms where juvenile art tends to be deposited. Little time-wasting projects that had been done during Sunday school, pages torn from coloring books showing a somewhat more multicultural Jesus than the one Randy had grown up with, curly hair, etc. Talking to little biblical kids or assisting disoriented Holy Land livestock. The sight of this stuff around the house commingled with normal, that is secular, kid art junk from elementary school, Batman posters, etc., made Randy feel grossly embarrassed. It was like going to the house of some supposedly sophisticated people and finding a neon on black velvet Elvis painting <laughs> hanging above their state-of-the-art Italian designer furniture. <laughs> Definitely a social class thing. And it wasn't like Scott and Laura were deadly earnest types and neither were they glassy-eyed and foaming at the mouth. They had, after all, managed to pass themselves off as members in good standing of a decent academic society for a number of years. They were a bit quieter than many others. They took up less space in the room. But then that was normal for people trying to raise three kids, and so they passed. Randy and Amy had spent a full hour talking to Scott and Laura last night. They were the only people who made any effort to make Amy feel welcome. Randy hadn't the faintest idea what these people thought of him and what he had done, but he could sense right away that essentially that was not the issue because even if they thought he had done something evil, they at least had a framework, a sort of procedure manual for dealing with transgressions. To translate it into Unix system administration terms, Randy's fundamental metaphor for just about everything, the postmodern politically correct atheists were like people who had suddenly found themselves in charge of a big and unfathomably complex computer system, society, with no documentation or instructions of any kind, and so whose only way to keep the thing running was to invent and enforce certain rules with a kind of neo-puritanical rigor, because they were at a loss to deal with any deviations from what they saw as the norm. Whereas people who were wired into a church were like Unix system administrators who, while they might not understand everything, at least had some documentation, some FAQs and how-tos and readme files, providing some guidance on what to do with thing, when things got out of whack. They were, in other words, capable of adaptability. You know, a lot of people think that the Christian faith and life is involved in some way with uh, all of the abstruse aspects of religion. 
and all of the doctrinal ways in which we talk about this, I think that's far more important than most people think, to be frank. But that's not the whole story. Part of the Christian faith in life, in fact, may be the centerpiece is that you and I have to learn how to be the best human beings we can be. And the great affirmation of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is also the impetus for us learning how to live faithfully uh, with the divine initiative within us. The Easter season, the great 50 days, has four themes that run through the whole of the Christian year in the liturgical churches, but in an intense and intentional way for the great 50 days of Easter. And these four things are as follows. The presence of the light of Christ, symbolized by the Paschal candle. This light is a light that is, has two purposes. It shines ahead of us to show us the way as the people of God and as individual human beings. And this light is internal. It represents the illuminative processes of God at work in every person. And this light within us, the divine center, is the thing that enables us to do two things. One is to see with greater clarity those aspects of our character that are godly and worth cultivating and that we find capable of sharing them with others when it is appropriate. And this light also shines on those aspects of our character that need work and that the illuminative process of God is going to show us in some way how to do that as we seek to follow Jesus. So the light of Christ is very important. That's why we have it too at baptisms and at funerals to remind us of the illuminative processes of God present in all aspects of human life and death. The second part, the second theme, which is very important, you know, I've come to appreciate this more both in my own ministry and in my own personal devotional life, that you need to read the Bible as a narrative. You need to see it as a whole. So the reason I mention that now is what we're going to be reading for the great 50 days is a narrative about God's presence to the creation and that how the resurrection and the ministry of Jesus brings a new creation to the world in a very important way. So the early Christians and those who began to write down their experience of Jesus in his earthly ministry and those before who were illuminated by the presence and the power of God in their lives were at pains to say on the Christians, on every page of the Bible, we see Christ present. We see Jesus present. And so when you begin to read this, you, you understand it. You know, we, we, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed, the Baptismal Creed in a few minutes when we renew our baptismal vows. And the Creed is a perfect example when it says, conceived of the, Virgin Mary, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, and da-da-da-da-da-da. And so you say to yourself in the Creed, well, what about the middle bits? What's in the Gospel? 
The Gospels tell us something about the ministry of Jesus. And so when the resurrection occurred, the apostles and the disciples understood because they put two and two together. They're part of this grand narrative. And they consulted their own sacred scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, or for some Christians, the Hebrew Bible in Greek. And they began to say to themselves, well, we, we see now exactly how the processes of God have been at work in the creation. So the history of salvation, that great narrative, is very important. The third thing is that during Easter, we focus on and celebrate the centrality and importance of baptism. We forget this or don't say it enough. Baptism is your ordination. It is your ordination as part of the priesthood of all believers. And so in one sense, your baptism introduces you to the sacramental life, which Episcopalians and Anglican Christians and other Western Christians who have a liturgical year understand the power and importance of the sacraments. And so we're now initiated into the sacramental life and we learn something about how to be God's people in the world. So baptism is central. And finally, the thing that nurtures the baptismal covenant in each of us, whether we feel it or not, is the Holy Eucharist, the spiritual food and drink that we receive Sunday to Sunday, month to month, year to year which gives us the spiritual strength and stamina to be able to be God's people in the world. When I was a young priest and more insufferable than I am now, <laughs> I used to stand at the door and somebody would come out and they'd say to me, well, you know, Father Brewer, um, I don't know whether I believe all this stuff about, you know, the bread and the wine becoming Jesus' body and blood or what we call, what name we give the real presence or all of these doctrinal things that the church talks about. But whenever I come to communion, I feel better. So I'd pull myself up to my full height and say, yes, but you need to be aware of da-da-da-da-da, right? I've reached the point in my ministry where if you tell me you feel better, I say, good, I want you to feel better. I want happy in this church, right? Because when you feel better, you can go out and effectively be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love to the world. You know, if what we're doing in here is just sort of a, a navel-gazing exercise or something we do for our own spiritual nurture and so forth, important as that is, if it has no application out there, then it is a, a useless undertaking. And so we have to guard against that at all times to know that uh, our personal piety is not the whole story. As necessary and as important it may be for us to get into a groove, so to speak, as we come to our common worship together. So think about those things, those four things, the light of Christ, the history of salvation, the power of baptism, and the Holy Eucharist. So I mentioned earlier that it's important to be the best human being you can be. And some of you may have a great difficulty with wondering whether God is present to you and how we understand what that means. 
I read a book a couple of years ago about the spiritual life, and it was, uh, I think the title was uh, Holy Longing. And I think a lot of people in our culture now are longing. They have some form of longing. I read a book by Julian Barnes. He's a famous writer in England. And he said, I don't believe in God, but I would like to. I don't believe in God, but I would like to. And I think a lot of people feel that. And maybe searching their life for ever having any kind of uh, moment where they felt one with the universe. Joseph Campbell, the great guy who wrote about myth and all of that sort of thing. Bill Moyers, there's a great PBS show about all of that. He said, when I was on the track team at Columbia, I was standing on the track one day and... All of a sudden, just standing there, I had this experience that I was absolutely one with the universe. I knew exactly who I was, and I knew exactly what I was gonna, supposed to do, like that. And I think sometimes people think about that in vocational terms and also spiritual terms. There are emotional, spiritual, and mental states. The Canadian philosopher... Charles Taylor wrote a book a couple of years ago called A Secular Age. It's a big, thick book, so you may not want to read it all. But uh, it's very, very good. And he's a believer. And he's also a world-renowned philosopher. And he says this. I hope you can follow it. We all see in our lives and or the space wherein we live our lives as having a certain moral, spiritual shape. Somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness, richness. That is, in that place, activity or condition, life is fuller, richer, deeper, more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should be. This is perhaps a place of power. We often experience this as deeply moving, as inspiring. Perhaps this sense of fullness is something we just catch glimpses of from afar off. We have the powerful intuition of what fullness would be were we to be in that condition, for example, of peace or wholeness, or able to act on that level of integrity or generosity, or abandonment, or self-forgetfulness. But sometimes there will be moments of experienced fullness, of joy and fulfillment, where we feel ourselves there. I bet every one of you have had that experience of some kind at one point or another in your life. That feeling of fullness. You know, uh, salvation, the word salvation, both in Hebrew and Greek, means health, wholeness, completion. And if we talk about being the highest and best human being that we can be, 
it means that we have done some work on ourselves and we understand things in a way that is uh, healthy and whole. In the early 1990s, the Cornerstone Project in the Episcopal Church uh, undertook to uh, study what they thought were the healthiest group of clergy in the Episcopal Church. I wish I could tell you that the percentage was high. But here's one of the things the study showed, that in their view of the healthiest clergy, uh, all of them were realistic about their idealism without lapsing into cynicism, which is very easy to do. But you know, when you're realistic about your idealism, there is a sense of fullness because you're liberated from having to impose that idealistic view on others. You know? And God loves us unconditionally, and what that means is he lets us be. He lets us be. And because of that, we're able to grow into this unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So for the great 50 days of Easter, uh, give thanks for the presence of the fullness of God, for what you believe or would like to believe, and see and understand that when you do that, you're in touch with what Father Thomas Keating, the great Trappist monk who has written widely on the spiritual life, your true self, he quotes St. Anthony, other people, uh, and we are not God, but our true self is God. And you know, that may be the best way to understand the resurrection, the possibility of transformation and new life. Amen. <laughs>